Thank you, one and all, and welcome to episode eight, I believe, of The Reset Show. Um, today, the theme of our show is health and well-being in the workplace, with a particular emphasis on mental health. Our special guest today is a speaker, strategic advisor, consultant, and a mental health campaigning colossus. So I'm extending a very warm welcome to Jeff McDonald. Jeff, thank you. Thank you for joining us today, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Before we get started, I'd like to extend, of course, a warm welcome to my co-hosts. As always, we have Katie and Emma from People Lab, Belinda from Fathom XP, and for the record, I'm Justin from Everyday Resilience. And of course, welcome to those of you who are joining us for this live recording and those of you who are watching the show on YouTube or listening to the podcast after the event. And I would like to hand over to Emma now to give you a brief reminder, put some context around what is the Reset Show? What's it all about? Why are we here? What can you expect? So uh, over to you, Emma. Oh, thanks, Justin. So um, great to have you all with us today. Um, probably pretty familiar with this spiel right now, but the Reset Show was originally put together to bring together a wonderful network of like-minded people to, to talk and, and collaborate on how we can use this opportunity that we have at the moment with the world being as it is to do things differently and for the better. Um, we've all got some great experiences and stories of, of how we've been able to kind of make things happen we've been wanting to happen for so long. And really interestingly today, talking about health and well-being, obviously, hugely relevant, particularly with, with what's going on this week, um, with the UK uh, entering lockdown again and, and elections, all that kind of stuff happening around the world. So really, really relevant topic. And um, I, I saw some research, I think it was from PECON actually a couple of weeks ago, talking about, you know, um, engagement and how engagement had changed during the COVID period. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a nice surprise to see that uh, people reporting that their companies are getting better at this stuff, better at the health and wellbeing stuff, which is music to my ears, and I'm sure to everyone else's ears as well. Um, you know, companies are really starting to, to think about how they look after, take care, uh, you know, of their people. So I think that, that's, that's great news. Um, so really the research show is all about us getting together to talk about hot topics and um, what's happening in the world of work and how we can use the opportunity of this collective experience we're going through to, to do things differently and do things better. So that's kind of what it's all about. So over to you, B, to introduce this week's guest. My connection to Jeff is through um, a very dear friend of mine who's an HRD um, for a large um, American tech business. And I know, Jeff, you were doing some work with them. And my friend Anne um, was just came off the course absolutely raving about how you'd help them and, 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 and the sort of the light that you shone onto this subject and how you made it such an unavoidable big strategic piece for them they had to had, really had to look at and have a different sort of conversation so Jeff and I had some conversations on the back of that and particularly in light of the book that Emma and I are writing on employee experience and how these how these themes match up so taking um well-being so it's not just an initiative alongside all the other initiatives that you might be doing actually how do you make it and why should it be that that's a big strategic piece so Justin before we sort of come back to Jeff with questions how would you like to tee Jeff up well now this is quite a challenge Jeff isn't it because um there's quite a lot I could say about what you've done um 
it feels reading your biog like it's the biog of four people all wrapped into one. So I shall I shall select some choice highlights. So um, for those of you who need a little bit more context and background about about Jeff, um, starting off twenty five years with Unilever, that seems to have been a real uh, quite a foundation for you, a springboard to all of the other work that you've been doing since. As I said in the introduction, a speaker, strategic advisor, consultant, mental health campaigner, which is our particular focus of the conversation today. But of course also very interested in the notion of purpose and uh, how do we really embed purpose in uh, an organizational culture and looking also about addressing taboos around mental health um, and the stigma around around depression uh, co-founder of the charity minds at work um, and just random interesting fact we are honored to be included among the people over the years that jeff has spent time with uh, include Pope Francis, Prince William, and Prince Harry, and Kate. So uh, we're we're delighted to have you here, Jeff. And that's my little uh, amuse bouche, if you like, of an introduction that I've picked out from from your bio to share with people. So my question, my first question, Jeff, what haven't we said about you that we should know? So Belinda and uh, Justin, thank you for such uh, such wonderful introductions. But you know what? I'm just an ordinary guy. Um, a South African who lives in a little village in Surrey in East Horsley. I mean, essentially, that's that, that's me. And um, and I think it was Mark Twain who once said, uh, "The two most important days in your life. What do you think they are?" Oh well, I, I, obvious answer. I'll jump in. The day you're born, the day you die. So, which part of the UK are you from, Justin? Uh, great question. I'm actually not from the UK. I'm from Ireland. Ah, that's why you answered the question like that. So, okay. So I don't know what it is about the Irish that they can't wait for the second most important day in their life, which is the day <laughs> that they die. Yes. So, you know? Oh, then, God. We're all about people. death. All hey. about death in Ireland. Yeah, death is hey, big. I, yeah, I can't wait for it. So I'm going to get born, day two, stick me in an incubator, switch everything off and let me die. And that's ah. going to be the second most important day in my Ooh. life. But, but what I think, what Mark Twain said is he said the two most important days in your life is the day you were born and the day you find out why. Nice. And you know, Belinda, I'm just so clear on the why. And it's been that sense of why that has led me to people and to places I could never, ever have imagined. As I say, I'm an, just an ordinary guy who lives in a little village in Surrey and and was ignited by a sense of purpose, which has led me to people and to places I could never, ever have imagined. So tell us about your journey with well-being. How does your why intersect with the well-being conversation? Yeah, I mean, it. the journey really started back in 2008. Never forget the date. 25th of Jan. And the reason I don't forget the date is because on the 26th of Jan, my eldest daughter, Jennifer, was going to turn 13. So I'm sure there's nobody on this call who can't resonate with what an exciting evening that is the night before you became a teenager. 
Remember that day? I mean, I remember Jen saying to me, you know what, Dad? That afternoon, she said, as of tomorrow, you speak to me differently. Like, what do you mean, Jennifer? I speak to you differently. Yes, you do. Why? Because I'm no longer your little girl tomorrow. I'm going to be a teenager. So you can imagine how much excitement. It's a little bit like Christmas coming. And at midnight on the 25th, that night, the night before my daughter's 13th birthday, I got woken up with the most massive, massive panic attack. Now, I'd, I mean, panic attack. I mean, I had never, ever experienced a panic attack in all my life. I don't think I'd ever had a conversation with anybody about a panic attack. I don't think it was part of my vocabulary. And because I was so naive with my fingers, the ends of my fingers tingling, my heart beating very quickly, struggling to regulate my breathing, the bed sheets are wet with sweat. I mean, I think I'm about to have a heart attack. I remember I bumped Debbie, my wife, and I said, Deb, I think I'm about to have a heart attack. And she said, why? And I, and you know, every time I tell the story, I feel, I can feel it every time. And I don't tell me how many times I've told the story, but I feel the anxiety right now. And I usually take a deep breath because that's what I did. I took a deep breath. I walked around the room and slowly the levels of anxiety began to subside. Cut a long story short, and I heard somebody call you B, Belinda, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna call you B as well. Um, cut a long story short, Jennifer comes running into our bedroom at seven o'clock the next morning. I just say to her, her younger sister, Anna, and her mum, please go away. I can't engage in anything that is enthusiastic, exciting, hopeful, and they go downstairs, they open presents, Debbie takes them to school. She gets back at about 10 o'clock, where am I? Still in bed. For the life of me, I can't get myself out of bed. I'm riddled with anxiety. And I just can't swing my legs onto the side of the bed, onto the floor and get up. And Debbie says, you've got to go and see a doctor. And being a bit of an alpha male, <laughs> What, go and see a doctor? I've got no aches, I've got no pains, I've got no temperature. There's nothing wrong with me. Just please go and see a doctor. Okay, long story short, at midday on the 26th of Jan, my daughter's 13th birthday, her dad is diagnosed with anxiety-fueled depression. Do you know my understanding of the word depression up until that point? Mm. I'm an Arsenal supporter. <laughs> Try be an Arsenal supporter. You know, you get two thirds into every season and the wheels fall off and you lose every hope you had of either being in the top four, getting into the Champions League, winning the Champions League. And I turn to Debbie and say, I'm so depressed about this Arsenal football club. When I walk out the doctor's rooms, I make a decision that saves my life, which was I refuse to be burdened by the stigma that is associated with depression. And you know, in some ways I was lucky because I'd seen a doctor who liberated me in some ways to make that decision because I'd kind of got this diagnosis B. I think the second thing I was so lucky about, I had had 20 years in Unilever. I was in a really senior job. I had built a lot of credibility over 20 years, but you know what the most lucky bit was? I had a boss 
who had an empathetic and a compassionate relationship mm. depression. And the third reason was what you see is what you get with me. So you just have to look into my eyes and you'll know there's something wrong. So I'm not very good at masking this stuff. But the reason that decision saved my life is because in telling my family, my close friends, and some of my colleagues at work, and by the way, I had to take three months off work. Do you know what I got back from nearly every single one of those people? The most powerful emotion in the world that kept me alive in my darkest, darkest moments as I took time to recover. And the emotion I got back was a sense of feeling loved. Mm. How many songs have been sung about the power of love? And you know, my darkest moments, knowing that my daughter loved me, that my boss at the time loved me. And a combination of feeling loved, a sense of hope, because I used to meet with a guy every kind of two weeks who two years prior to my illness had been so ill, he'd been admitted to the priory. That's how ill he was. And I used to meet with Martin and I saw he was better. Wow, did he give me hope. Hmm. Just that little bit of hope. And so love, feeling loved, and a bit of hope, which, by the way, cost nothing, mm. saved my life. Huge levers in my recovery. I get better. I go back into Unilever after being off for three months. I have a bit of a relapse in 2010. And then in October of 2012, the 11th of October, 2012, I'm walking home one evening. Debbie calls me. And she says, Jeff, I've got terrible news. I said, what is it? Are the girls okay? She said, the girls are okay. But one of your closest friends died by suicide this afternoon. 11th of October, 2012. Carl Jung said, the brighter the light, the hmm. darker the shadow. Hmm. And you know what? That was him. Ruby Wax, Stephen Fry, Winston Churchill. And I lay in bed that night and I came to the most simple, simple conclusion. And the conclusion that I came to was that stigma had just killed my friend. Here I was now on the 11th of October, 2012, learning every single day how to maintain my recovery as somebody susceptible to anxiety fueled depression. And in some ways I'm flourishing as I'm so disciplined in maintaining my recovery. And my friend's gone. And I thought to myself, he couldn't even talk to me. I had the badge. I had the T-shirt. He couldn't talk to his wife. And instead, he died by suicide. And I lay there and I thought, that can't be fair. In the 21st century, it just can't be fair that we can't talk about our mental and emotional struggles when we have to. Because all of us on this call are mental. Not one of us on the call that's not mental. Mm. And we're all physical. And so I didn't know where to start be. I kind of thought, how am I going to make a difference? How am I going to address stigma? And you know, back then, 2012, in this country, in the UK, we were just starting. We're probably 18 months into the Time to Change campaign. And, um, and the guy who was sort of fronting the campaign and was a patron and was a guy called Alistair Campbell. Mm -hmm. And so I went onto his website that night and I just looked up his email address and I found an email address. And so I wrote to him that night and I just said to him, 
please, please, will you meet with me? I've just lost a friend to suicide. This is my own little story. And I want to do something around breaking stigma. And I just know that if I can meet with you, you'll begin to open some doors, introduce me to some people. Within 10 minutes, I had a response. This wasn't Tony Blair writing to Alistair. This was Jeff Dot McDonald at btinternet.com, little guy in Surrey writing to Alistair Campbell. I get a response in 10 minutes. A week later, we meet up in Belsize Park. And ever since that day, he introduces me, opens some doors, which allows me to take tiny footsteps on a journey filled with a deep, deep sense of purpose. And that is to create workplaces all over the world where people in those workplaces feel they genuinely, genuinely have the choice to just put their hand up and to ask for some help if they are struggling from a common form of mental ill health. Mm. That one conversation, that one conversation might just save a life. Mm. And not for one minute, B, am I saying to you today that had my friend been able to have the conversation, he would definitely be alive today. I'm not saying that for one minute, but you know what I am saying? A harmonious beach grain of sand, tiny, tiny grain of sand. Do you know what? There's a tiny chance he would be the proud father of a 23-year-old, 17-year-old, and a 16-year-old today, had he been able to have that one conversation. There's a mm. tiny chance. Mm. You know what? It's worth fighting for every single day of my life to give people that chance. Thank you for sharing that. It's so I, I'm sure everybody on this call has been touched by suicide and it's it's you know it's 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 really hard to listen to. Thank you for sharing it. Um how do you I, I suppose I don't want to shift just make an enormous jump to organizations, but organizations are just groups of people, right? But the problem with the a lot of the organizations that we have manifested over the last 50, 100, however many, you know, two centuries in some organizations, is that they don't feel like organizations of people, they feel like machines that are making people sick. How have you taken that experience and your purpose into those organizations? And where does it really make a difference? Because we've already talked about the fact that it you know, we see well-being initiatives or programs and it involves cupcakes on a Friday or, and it's just, I don't know, I, I won't label it, but it's stuff. It's not structural change. Yeah. Where and how do we create the structural change that's needed? Yeah, I'll be, I mean, look, there are a couple of things that I think I've been so fortunate uh, in. One is, you know, working for Unilever gives me a bit of credibility to be able to go into a boardroom and have this conversation. And the fact that I was in human resources for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing is, I'm not an expert in this stuff. I'm just somebody with lived experience. So when people introduce me as an expert in mental health, I say, please don't. I mean, I'm just somebody with some lived experience. And so the lived experience, the credibility of 25 years in a well-respected organization and in HR gives me a little bit of credibility. On top of that, I then bring an insight to my journey over the last 
six to eight years. And the insight probably only came to me about 18 months ago. And you know what the insight was, B? Was that the most limiting resource that I see in every single organization that I go into today, irrespective of the sector, irrespective of the size of the organization, the most limiting resource is the energy of people. They are frazzled. They are frazzled. They can't wait for a Friday afternoon and they detest a Monday morning. And you know what I think? Energy is probably the most important driver of performance. Think about it. You know, think about your two football teams maybe that you support. I don't know. The one that's got the most energy on the day is the one that's going to win. I mean, think of the talented people in organizations who end up in the top right of, a, of, a, of an assessment. They bring energy, passion. Think about the people you love working with. They radiate this stuff. And you know where we get our energy from? Our health. Because when we're not healthy, we've got no energy. And so what I try to do is I try to make this link between the energy, the health, and then the performance of the individual, the team, and the organization. And when, I'm, when, when that penny drops and people kind of begin to say, you know what, hey, there's something in there. So maybe the energy and the health of our people is our most important asset. Not people are our most important asset. The energy, the health of our people is probably our most important asset. And if it's the most important driver of performance, and guess what? I can say, I, I can say with credibility, when I was ill, I had all the skills, all the knowledge, all the behaviors, all the experience to do my job. Guess what? I couldn't do it because I was not healthy. Mm. And so then I pose the question, if that's the case, why is the health of your people not a strategic priority? Because every other strategic priority, show me your strategic priorities. They're all about enabling the performance of the organization. They're all about enabling the performance of the organization. So why is health not there? And as Emma said, Emma, I loved what you said. You know, work and going to work should be life enhancing. It gives people a sense of purpose. It gives people a routine. It gives people the opportunity to build relationships with one another. It gives you a sense of community. Wow, it could be so life enhancing. Mm. But instead, what do we do when it comes to health and well-being? Like you said, B, we have a week called the Well-Being Week. We don't put a change program behind this. We don't see it as a strategic priority. And so for me, B, I know this is a long answer to your question, but I think the approach is an approach of trying to, trying to make the case and elevate and see, the, see this link. And, 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 and you know what? We, we, we live in this game. We talk, you know, it's obvious to us that health and energy and performance are, they, they are 
inextricably linked. It's obvious to, to us because we live in it, this game all the time. But it, one of my biggest lessons is it's not obvious to a CEO. It's not obvious to the CFO. You know what I mean? They need, they, need, they need that kind of catalyst to kind of penny to drop and to begin to think about, wow, you know, maybe there is something in the health of our people being the most important driver of their performance. Then the question becomes, well, if we were to make health a strategic priority, what does that look like? You know, then what does that look like? And I think, you know, that's some work that I've been trying to evolve and think about what could it look like if we were to elevate it you know well-being programs don't stick in companies three reasons one it's not a strategic priority secondly there's no organization accountability to keep people healthy huge accountability to keep people safe <laughs> we keep everybody safe we spend billions in health and safety well it all goes to safety Every organization I walk into when they give me their health and safety pamphlet I read it and I say to them please get rid of the word healthier because this is all about safety. And the third reason it doesn't stick is there's no individual accountability to maintain your health, holding individuals accountable in the organization to maintain their health. Wow, I don't know if I've answered your question and I've done a lot of talking. So why don't we, because this is now sounds like me, you know, advocating stuff instead of a, a lovely chat show. This is supposed to be a chat show. <laughs> I think while you've been talking, uh, answering the question, you've spawned many more questions, which is the nature of a good chat, isn't it? Um, cool. I know Emma has some questions. I imagine Bea has some questions, but I'm, I'm going to actually come to one of our guests, uh, guest audience members here, because Fiona, I've noticed you're doing a lot of nodding. It, it's actually really interesting because you guys probably know I'm really passionate about fitness and, and health and being healthy at work physically as well as mentally. Um, and I am one of those crazy people in the gym at six o'clock in the morning to get it done. Sounds awful out the way, but I'm more productive during the day. So I definitely completely resonate with everything. And it, your, your three points of why they don't work, you know, why well-being and, and performance and strategy, you know, you absolutely nail on the head. And I think have you got any examples of where a well-being strategy has absolutely hit the nail on the head for a company and then how that has improved the productivity? Look, I mean, uh, you know, I've just been I've just been doing some interview. I did an interview for a big conference the other day with the chief HR officer of Unilever. Um, and, um, you know, the work that they've been doing around well-being, slowly elevating it to being a strategic priority. I mean, it is absolutely hitting the nail on the head. I mean, they are showing a one in close to three or four pound return as a result of what they've been doing. So for every pound that they've spent on their well-being strategy, they're showing a three to four pound return. And they've measured that through increased employee engagement, reduced turnover, uh, enhanced attractiveness, reduced absenteeism, increased productivity within the organization. And, and, and I, I think, Fiona, if you were to go and Google, if you were to just Google that question, there, there, are, there are lots of, there's lots of business cases out there 
you know, that show that when you attend to and enhance the health of your people, you get a return. And I think Harvard have just done a piece of work which has gone to almost $5 for every $1. But then the question is, okay, Jeff, so if it's so obvious, <laughs> why isn't it being done? Why don't we see more organizations with health as a strategic priority if it's so obvious? And I think part of the answer to that question is, number one, I don't think we've, there's this kind of absolute link has been made between health performance. You know, healthy people are safer. I think the other thing is, your health is your personal responsibility. Mm. It's a personal issue. We as an organization, we don't need to take accountability. And how on, are you really telling me that as part of your the development of my people, I want to talk to them about their health. I'm going to have a conversation with B, which says, and by the way, B, this does not apply to you. But GB, I've noticed you've got real bags and rings under your eyes, and you probably are not sleeping. What's going on? Let's have a con come on. I mean, Jeff, who, who are you to talk to me about the rings under my eyes? So I think there's, there's that as a barrier. And I think the third barrier, and maybe we'll get a bit of chance to play this out just now, is what, what, would, I, what would I need to do? I think CEOs and HR professionals, they don't really know what to do to elevate. What does it look like if health were a strategic priority? What does it actually look like? So, so absolutely, there's the business case. But I think there are some of these barriers that we're having to work through um, to actually move people from, I don't know, for some, I don't know, for some reason, I think it's just about a real will to want to do this stuff. You know, Emma, I think you, somebody, somebody mentioned, you know, people, no, it was you, B. You know, people are seen as a unit of production. They are not seen as, as human beings that through their energy and their health, they bring huge, huge value to the organization. Thanks for that, Jeff. It's a really interesting conversation. And I guess a couple of reflections that are a question for you. I think um, in my experience, um, yeah, health isn't seen as a strategic priority, it's seen as something that, you know, is part of the HR strategy and a, and a useful part of the HR strategy. But I think um, it's often given to, you know, a more junior, perhaps member of the team to, to, to coordinate a wellbeing week. And it's all best intentions, but actually it's very superficial and very transactional. I think there's something about, you know, we wouldn't give, you know, marketing of our products and services to a, to a marketing intern, no matter how brilliant they were, we, we need to meet some real expertise in here. And I think, um, for me, I've talked about being a positive psychologist and I'm so passionate, I mean, I'm a psychologist first and foremost, but more latterly a positive psychologist. And I'm so passionate about this because, and I know Justin's in the same corner as me, because it's about, you know, getting away from that medical model approach to, to, to the human being as something to be fixed. Yeah. Don't, don't worry about it until it's broken, then we'll yeah. fix it. Now, yes, psychology's got a part, and psychologists have a part to play when something's gone so badly wrong, we've got to get people back to, normal whatever normal is i think i see companies taking the same approach it's like we don't worry about that stuff until people really need it then we've got an you know employee assistance yeah. program we've got occupational health and it's like 
kind of missing the point about let's kind of help people to thrive in the first place, then you're probably not going to need nearly as much of that stuff. So that kind of brings me to the, the question or the, 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 the area I'd love to discuss, which is around the, the stigma of discussing mental health. And I know like my background is psychologist. So I always say to people, you know, clearly I'm cool with talking about this stuff because I wouldn't have done it as a profession, but so you wouldn't expect to go through life without getting any form of physical illness, be it a cold through to cancer. So why would you expect to not have any form of kind of mental illness, be it a little bit of, you know, feeling a bit blue through to full on, you know, kind of psychotic episode and you, you know, you having to be sectioned. And yet we're still really uncomfortable. We're talking about this stuff. And particularly in the workplace, um, we do a lot of webinars and we do lots of, as Justin does, lots of kind of trained development around this stuff. And even then, something as simple as talking about meditation, you know, the arms are folded and the, you know, and like suddenly I'm this kind of weird, fluffy, crazy woman talking about stuff that I, you know, and even now, and even I've got the neuroscience, I show them the neuroscience and MRI scans go, look what's happening in your brain. And it's still, it's really hard to A, talk about this stuff and B, talk about any kind of mental ill health. So what are your thoughts on that? And what have you found has worked for you to break down some of those barriers? Yeah, thank you, Emma. Um, bringing me back to my roots. Um, so look, um, you know, I think what we are dealing with is a significant stereotype, stigma around mental ill health. And so, you know, and the reason that the stigma seems to be so, and I don't know, I mean, I'm not sure whether it is only so prevalent in workplaces. You know, look at my friend. He couldn't talk to his wife. He married to her for close to 18 years. So mm -hmm. I think the stigma exists in families, in friendship groups, mm -hmm. and yes, in workplaces. And I think it's all about, it's all about the association that we make with mental ill health and weakness. So mm -hmm. if you struggle with a mental ill health condition, you're weak. You can't take the heat in the kitchen. I don't think we've made enough heroes out of people who have struggled and look what they've gone on and done. Mm. Abraham Lincoln, Marie Curie, Winston Churchill. I mean, these were all people who struggled. So I don't think we've made, I don't think we've, we've made heroes out of those people. I think the other thing is is I think there's also, because we are so ill-informed around mental ill health, I really think, Emma, there's a real fear that exists in an organization, in a workplace. If we were to start talking about this stuff, what can of worms are we going to open up? Are we going to trigger people to go and do something and harm themselves? What is the safeguarding that we need to have or haven't got? So I think there's a real, real fear. Now, what do I see as probably the two most powerful levers in addressing the stigma? Oh, and by the way, Emma, then I could throw, depending upon which part of the world I'm in, all the cultural barriers. So if I'm in India, 
I mean, a psychiatrist is still referred to as a mad doctor. A mad doctor. You know, if I'm in parts of Africa, men don't talk about this stuff. Men man up and get on with life. Now, what are the two, for me, the two most powerful levers of trying to bring down those barriers? The first one is what I did this morning with you or this afternoon, storytelling. Mm. And you know what? I think it's got to be storytelling in workplaces by people who the audience can resonate with. I think that's so important. So, so important. And you know, Emma, in workplaces, we just haven't got and heard enough. So I love Prince Harry and what he's done and William and Alistair Campbell and all of these celebrities and sports people. I mean, it's fantastic. But what about the CEO of Lloyd's? It took us two years to get him to start talking about this. Two years. So Ian Cheshire and I badgered him for two years to just stop telling us he had a stress-related illness and just be open about this stuff. But I think storytelling, and you know, Emma, it doesn't have to be everybody's got a crucible moment. Let me give you an example. When I was in Unilever, and as, as, I, as I came out and shared more of my story and others started to do the same, our chief scientist, our chief scientist, he came in one day and he wrote a blog to his 3,000 scientists around the world of what is it like to be the father of a daughter who suffers from general anxiety disorder. Do you know that blog? The scientist in India knew that if she was struggling, she could put her hand up and ask for some help because she had a leader who had a compassionate and empathetic understanding. Now, if you're gonna tell a story of somebody else, I always say, please get their permission first because we still live with a lot of stigma. But I think the more stories that are told, the more people are opening up and being vulnerable about exactly as you said, you can't go through life without a bit of flu or a cold, some of us COVID. And so storytelling, storytelling, I think really is so, so powerful. And the more people, you know, I often say, please, please join me on my crusade. One of the things you can do is share and tell a story because every story that we tell is like sending a lifeboat out into the ocean. And the people who are suffering in silence, do you know what they do when they hear your story? They cling on to it and they realize two things. They're not alone and they're just normal like me. They're just normal. So storytelling, 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 number one. And the second, Emma, has got to be education. Mm. It's got to be training. It's got to be, we've got to encourage and get organizations to train everybody Every single, I mean, yes, mental health first aid England and all this other, I mean, fantastic. But let's not just have a few mental health first aiders on a floor. I want every single person in an organization to have had a 90 minute, a two hour introduction to mental health, just like we do for safety. And I think the more people we train and the more stories that we tell, so we begin to address some of those barriers that I was talking about up front. Thank you. Thanks for that. 
Jeff, thank you so much. And um, a little bit like Belinda earlier, I'm, I'm struggling to move. I don't want to move on from this, but uh, I'm also aware that we have to because we're coming to the end of our time together. Uh, you've brought a, a very different energy, speaking of energy, to this episode of The Reset Show. And it's, kind of, it's certainly taken me by surprise. And I really appreciate that. And I want to thank you from, from the, the three of us, or the four of us rather, and, and I know from the guests as well. I want to thank you for taking the time to show up and be yourself and not be Jeff McDonald, speaker, strategic advisor, mental health campaigner, because you're demonstrating your principles in action and particularly your principle about storytelling, which, uh, and I love your metaphor about the, the boat going out mm. into the ocean. I think it's so powerful. And I feel like anything I say now, <laughs> is going to diminish from the power of that final message of yours, which was about the two storytelling and education and training working together. And of course, education and training works when it's underpinned by story. Um, so I am going to take the liberty of saying thank you on behalf of all of us for, for sharing your time and your energy and your stories and your insight and your passion. Uh, I think we're all leaving this call with further questions to ask ourselves and uh, stories that we need to share. And um, a couple of just specific thanks to Fiona for joining in as well. And for, we've had some comments from Rainer. So thank you all for that. Uh, folks, we will post resources uh, for some of the things Jeff has mentioned. You'll be receiving those as part of the post-show package. And a brief reminder to those of you who haven't already signed up, if you want to see more of these kind of conversations, I can't guarantee they'll all be as compelling as Jeff's conversation, but they are all worth a watch. We've had some previous shows with some fantastic, fantastic speakers. Um, David R. Hamilton, H Helena Clayton, Heather uh, E. McGowan. Um, last week, we had a double header of Bonnie Chuk and Ella Richardson. We had Perry Timms as well. So there's a huge resource of inspiration and insight out there for you. So, um, Final thought from Laura, that was so challenging. We are doing a lot, but is it strategic enough? Well, as, as it's popped in, um, let's just hand over to, to Jeff for that final. This is your Colombo moment, Jeff. Your, and one <laughs> more thing. Uh, is it strategic enough? You know, I don't know. Um... I can't answer that question for you, Justin. I mean, hopefully what I've done this afternoon is I've either confirmed some beliefs for you and that has, let me be careful. Maybe it's inspired you to just go the extra mile because that belief has been so confirmed. For others, I might've challenged a few beliefs and maybe you'll think differently about this stuff as a result of challenging some of those beliefs. But I think you have all been to some extent, and in particular, probably Laura, who asked the question, 
provoked enough to really go away and think about this at a more strategic level. And you know, B, we didn't get enough into the detail of, of what does it look like if, if it was strategic. And I'd happily do another chat show where we actually go into some of the detail of what would you be expecting a company to do? To what, what would they execute if they were very strategic in their approach? Well, there you go. You've just signed up for another return to the reset show. Uh, reset show eight part B. Um, Jeff, thank you so much. I'm conscious of your time. I, I don't want to overstay our welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, um, folks. Uh, just finally from me, you, you will know already that I am a big fan of Brené Brown, as I'm sure all of we are, all of us are. And Raina, you've reminded me of uh, her fantastic talk about vulnerability um, and the work that Brené Brown does. So for anyone who's watching who hasn't already seen uh, Brené's talk, uh, TED talk, check it out. We'll post the link in the resources. And finally, you've talked about confirmation and challenge. And I want to add a third C there, which is the magic, magical power of curiosity. I came across a lovely quote from um, the Irish poet James Stevens the other day. And uh, I just think it's a nice one to, to, to finish on. It's curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. Mm -hmm. So there's your moment of Zen at the end of the show. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, folks. Brief plug for the next show, which is uh, coming up uh, as always in two weeks time. We have another wonderful guest. This time it is Carly Lauf, design-driven innovation and prototyping strategy expert. Don't be afraid. Don't be put off by the title. Um, Carly's a senior instructor at the Luma Institute works with global organizations a bit a bit like Jeff, um, but looking at redesigning process and strategies to integrate prototyping into an organization culture. So how can we put these theories into practice and, and bring them bring them to life? So we will be talking with Carly next time. Um, until then, uh, thank you so much, one and all. And um, we wish you well and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Guys, thank you for the great work you're doing. And just keep it up. And just keep it up. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Jeff. You. Take care, everyone.